Well, it is great to be with you. Thank you very much. Um, it's great to be with you. Uh, we come back here and we feel right at home. Sometimes we sneak in and out and we're not able to be with you, but we spend time with family. We were here right after Christmas, between Christmas and uh, the first of the year, and we enjoyed that very much. And I know a number of you have asked me already how uh, our son John is doing. John is 24 years old, and last fall he was in a rock climbing gym and had a fall where he fell about 28 feet free fall and uh, crushed three discs in his back, and one of them was pressing into his spinal column, so they had to do surgery, and he went through a seven-hour surgery where they put uh, these eight to 10-inch rods in his back, uh, two of them, and 10 four-inch screws in his back uh, to repair his spine, and they had predicted that in March and April of this year, by now, he would be uh, using a walker and a wheelchair, and by early summer, he'd be using a cane and maybe done with the cane by the end of the summer, and because of your prayers and God's goodness, uh, he was able to lay the cane aside in the middle of January. So, and he went on a nine-mile hike last weekend um, with some rock climbing friends and watched them rock climb. <laughs> so, you know, that's one of those calls you get as a parent you just, you just don't want. Um, and thank you for your prayers. I know a number of you have communicated via social media and email that you've been praying for him. Wanted to give you uh, that update. Uh, on all of our kids, John uh, works for the Ventura County Health Department in public health and is a graduate of Wheaton College. And then our second oldest, Katie, graduates from Wheaton College this spring. Um, and I can never remember which things she's majoring in and which things she's minoring in, but it includes gender studies, international relations, and Mandarin Chinese are uh, her things. And then our youngest, Megan, who was born a year after I became pastor here, uh, she'll t turn 20 this year. Uh, she, she went off to uh, college last fall, and so she's a freshman at Seattle University in Seattle, Washington. And so uh, we got a great family. God has blessed us, and many of you poured into our kids and into our lives over the years, and we're so grateful for that. Now, while I'm away, we have a guest speaker at uh, Calvary Community Church in Westlake Village, California, and uh, He's a friend of mine, his name is Nick Wojcik. He wrote the afterword to my memoir. And Nick was born with our, without arms and legs and has a great evangelistic ministry around the world. His offices are about a block from our church. And, and uh, he's speaking this weekend and we kind of extended it to have a couple of nights of kind of like revival meetings, if you will. Uh, we have a young adult service every Thursday night that usually has about 250 18 to 24 year olds. Well, Thursday night at their service, they had over 450 people came to Jesus that night. And then Friday night, we had a, another special service with Nick just to the whole congregation, and 70-some uh, came to Jesus that night. And then last night in our regular um, Saturday night service, uh, there were 70-some uh, who came to Jesus. And so we're excited about what God's doing in our midst, and there was a lot of our folks bringing their friends with them, uh, people who would be interested in hearing Nick's story. And I, I think, John, you guys have tried to reach out to Nick to try to get him here sometime, and he's a great communicator. But of the three sermons he's already preached, the shortest was 86 minutes. So I love it because he's setting a new standard back in California. <laughs> and the uh, only problem is this next weekend we have Alistair Begg with us. And Alistair is like a 33-minute preacher. And it's like right down to 33 minutes all the time. So he'll recalibrate him again before I get to preach. And so that's not good. 
I am uh, excited to be able to um, be with you, and uh, we see so many familiar faces uh, when we're just in the lobby, if, even if we're not speaking, but I see so many familiar faces up here, and we wish we could greet all of you, but uh, again, thank you for the way you've poured into our lives over the years. We moved to Charleston in uh, December of 1997, as I became the pastor in November that year, and uh, we settled in to our house that we lived in for 11 years, had one home here all the time we were here. It's over in kind of the South Hills area there, up by uh, the Rolling Hills area. And uh, we had some great neighbors there. Uh, some of them are part of the, the church here. John and Shar Young were neighbors down the street and loved on our kids. And they were just great for us as neighbors. On uh, the one side of us, we had Bev and Butch Charlton. If you know the Charltons, they're wonderful people and great neighbors on the other side of us, um, a couple of years after we moved in, Brent Sears, who doesn't come to uh, Bible Center, but is uh, a good man, a good friend. His daughters moved in next to us, he and his daughters. And, uh, and before Brent, though, we had a neighbor next to us, and they were an older couple, and they were kind of curmudgeonly. <laughs> And we moved into our house and, uh, you know, the, the distance between our homes was probably about as wide as between these plants, how close our homes were together, between these two plants. And um, our kids were very young. John was about four, Megan was about two, uh, or excuse me, Katie was about two, Megan wasn't even born. And um, they would wander around the backyard and there was no fence, no hedge or anything between our two backyards, this couple and ours, and even Butch and Bev on the other side. And they would kind of wander over a little bit into the yard over there playing, and then they'd come back into ours, but maybe a foot or two. Well, it so irritated this man that like the second week we lived there, he went to the, the property marker at the front of the property and the property marker at the back, and he strung a wire all the way down. And he never talked to me except for this one time. He, he looked at me and he said, that shows you where you keep your kids. You keep them on that side. That was our welcome to Charleston, uh, our neighborly welcome. And uh, he would never talk to me. If, if he was mowing his lawn and I went out to mow mine, he would stop his lawnmower, go in the house until I was done. He'd never be out at the same time. If we were on our back deck and they were on their back deck, they'd go inside. It was just very hard. It was hard to love on them. I don't even know their names. They barely spoke to us. We tried to wave at them. When they come in the driveway, they would never wave at us. It was just very awkward. Then on the other side, we had Butch and Bev. And Butch and Bev, in a, a cabinet in their uh, living room, they have a drawer where Butch keeps candy for kids, his grandkids and then my kids. And so my kids still, when they come to town, go and visit Butch and Bev, just wanting to know what's in that drawer right now, Snickers bars, whatever. And so we had these great neighbors who were, who were neighborly, not just in the candy they gave our kids, but wonderful neighbors. And on the other side, we had folks who were just hard to even say hello to. You know, we, we deal with the people we work with, we deal with people in our everyday paths, and, and there is a principle in Scripture we know that talks about how we're supposed to love our neighbor. Today we're going to talk about neighborly love, and if you have your Bible or you have a mobile device, join me in Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10. We're going to be looking at a very familiar story that Jesus told, the story of the Good Samaritan. And uh, we're, we're going to see today that we live out Christ-like neighborly love when we love people who are the farthest from us. We live out Christ-like, just like Jesus loved, neighborly love when we love the people who are the farthest from us. I'm not just talking about distance. It could be distance that, that they're away from us. And, and Caleb mentioned being on that trip to Thailand, and I've heard some reports from various uh, folks who are on that team. 
And uh, it's great that the Bible Center has a ministry that helps uh, people who are caught up in human trafficking in a faraway distant place. And you're being a neighbor as a church and those who enter being neighborly in their love by going that distance. But sometimes it's not an issue of distance, it's a, an issue of difference. Or maybe people who do, don't like us and we don't really like them. We don't have things in common or they're different than us or, or they rub us the wrong way or frankly just people at work in the neighborhood that come across our path in a store wherever we go who just irritate the tar out of us. We're to love them like Jesus would love them. We live out Christ-like neighborly love when we love people who are the farthest from us. They may be different than us politically, socioeconomically, whatever way. But when we really are like Jesus, we love them as a neighbor would love. How, how can we do that? How can we love people who are so different from us, so distant from us, people we wouldn't naturally associate with or get along with? Well, we have to understand this. We need to love those who are the farthest from us because God loved us when we were the farthest from him. God loved me while I was still a sinner, Romans 5.8 says. God loved me while I was still a sinner and he demonstrated his love so much that while I was still guilty of my sin with a broken relationship before the God who made me, Jesus crossed the distance and Jesus became really the ultimate good Samaritan. That's the highest arcing story here of the passage and the parable of the good Samaritan. Jesus came, traversed time and space, and walked among us, and the innocent one, the Son of God, went to the cross, and all of my guilt, all of my shame, all of my sin was poured out on him. All of your guilt, all of your shame, and all of your sin was poured out on him. He died, he was buried, and he was raised from the dead so that we could have new life in him, not through our religiosity, not through some sincere good efforts or our good works, but through the finished work of Jesus Christ and in Jesus Christ alone. That's love. That's the ultimate demonstration of neighborly love. And let me just say, if you have not experienced that love, the way you receive the love gift God offers you is to put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. You transfer whatever you're trusting in, you transfer your trust to Christ and Christ alone. And right where you sit, you could pray and receive Jesus and accept God's love gift to you. God loves you right now where you are, no matter what you've done, no matter who you are. God loves you and wants to have a relationship with you through Jesus Christ. And on that basis then, because God loved me when I was the farthest from him, because God loved you when you were the farthest from him, that's the basis on which then we can love people who rub us the wrong way, who are different than us, who don't match maybe our socioeconomic standing, our political views, whatever it might be. We can show a Christ-like neighborly love to those who are the farthest from us. I want us to look at this incredible passage in Luke 10 is I, I want to just walk through this parable, a story that Jesus told to make a specific point. And let's begin at verse 25 of Luke 10. Follow along on, in your hard copy of the Bible or follow along on your mobile device. On one occasion, an expert in the law, now we've got to stop there and understand what are we talking about, about uh, the Roman law? No. This is in Jesus' day. It's a conversation between a lawyer and Jesus. But this lawyer is a lawyer of the Old Testament law. He was the kind of person who advised the Pharisees and the Sadducees regarding the rules, the religious leaders of the day, 
of the Old Testament. There are 613 laws given to Israel in the Old Testament, 613 moral, ceremonial, and civil laws. And he was an expert in those laws. But not only that, in the years between the end of the Old Testament and the arrival of Jesus on planet Earth, the scribes and the Pharisees, they had added codes captured in the Midrash and the Talmud, codes on top of the laws, thousands. So they took every one of those 613 laws and added more things and defined it even more. So there, there, were, there was this onus uh, burden upon the people because of this. And this guy is one of the guys they have to look to to interpret all this stuff. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Now you know he's in trouble. If you're gonna test Jesus, you're gonna be in trouble. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit, to get, to have eternal life? Now, his answer had to do with certain codes. And different philosophies of the day said you had to do these codes, but not these, and these laws, but not these. And, and so there was a debate over which laws you actually had to keep so you'd be good enough for God to let you in. Jesus doesn't give just an answer. He does what a good teacher does, what a good rabbi does, and he asks a question. Verse 26, Jesus says to this legal expert of the Old Testament law, what is written in the law? He replied, how do you read it? And that how do you read it is, what philosophy are you from? And the man goes back and he gives the foundation, rightly gives the foundation of all those laws. They had to do with how we relate to God and how we relate to each other, all those laws. And he says, well, he answered in verse 27, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. That comes right out of what the passage in Deuteronomy 6 referred to as the Shema passage. And verse 5, where they would learn that phrase, hero Israel, the Lord our God is one. And, and in verse five, it talks about, now you love him with everything you've got. And the reason why Jesus is gonna commend this as the right answer is because it's not about keeping the law. It's about a love relationship with God. And who started this love relationship? God. We love him because he first loved us, John tells us. And so this love relationship is the key. And now we know through Christ that it is on his finished work that we can have that established relationship with God. So the, the lawyer says that, and then he gives a second part. Love Lord your God with all you got. And then he says, love your neighbor as yourself. This quotes from uh, the, uh, the book of Leviticus in the Old Testament, chapter 19 and verse 18. To love your neighbor as yourself. So Jesus responds, you've answered correctly. Why is that correct? If you get your relationship with God right... You, you have a love relationship with him. We know it's established through Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross. Then your love goes horizontal to people. People in your home, people in your neighborhood, people where you work, people in your everyday path. He says, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself. He wants to prove himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Now we look at that and go, well... Your neighbor, the people that live near you. But there were two schools of thought that had kind of emerged in their expression by the time of Jesus as the Pharisees and the Sadducees. But the two schools of thought debated who your neighbor was. One school said, oh, your neighbor is the person who lives right next to you and then the next person, but it's not the third house from you. 
One said, no, it's not only the first group of people or the second group of people, it's the third house down both directions. Those are your neighbors. And they spent time all day long debating who their neighbor was. And so he's trying to draw Jesus right back into the same kind of debate he asked when, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He wants him to get into this debate. But in reply, Jesus tells a story. Verse 30, in reply, Jesus said, a man, now whenever a Jewish rabbi like Jesus would tell a story and gave no ethnicity to the person, it was assumed to be a Jewish person. So it's a Jewish man. In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now let's stop for a moment. Jerusalem sits up high. Jericho is very low down in the Jordan Valley. You descend 3,000 feet when you go from Jerusalem to Jericho. And as you descend those 3,000 feet, it'll take you 17, 17 miles to go from, from Jerusalem to Jericho. And the path is very windy through one of the most desolate parts I, I've been in in the world. You just see a few Bedouin families out there in the middle of nowhere today. Leslie and I were there just last fall, and as we, we went the opposite way, we went from Jericho up to Jerusalem, I was struck again by how desolate and, and just, there, I mean, the Mojave Desert in California looks green and lush compared to this part of territory that's described here, that this man is traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho. And it says, when he was attacked by robbers. So he's probably traveling at this point through what they referred to in Jesus' day as the bloody patch. It's a little space where it's kind of in a crevice. And when you think of the road he's traveling, don't think of a, a road like Corridor G. I mean, the, the aisles here between the groups of chairs are much broader than the road this is. We found parts of this old road. And it goes along and it's sometimes two feet wide, a foot and a half wide, as wide as it's three or four feet wide, this road. But he's in this crevice where robbers will often hang out and, and steal from people. So they steal from him. They take his clothes off of him. They beat him. They rob him. And they leave him for half dead. They assume he's probably dead. And anybody who comes along assumes he's either dead or he's about to die. He needs some help. Verse 31. A priest happened to be going down the same road. Now, when Jewish rabbis told parables and stories, there was often a, a familiar plot. A problem would be presented, a problem that's going to teach the moral of the story, the principle of the story, and then usually a priest, a Jewish priest who served in the temple would come along and solve it, or a Levite, they were not priests, but they were the people who served. They prepared the sacrifices, they kept the temple up, they, they helped make sure the priests were cared for. A Levite would come along and solve the problem. And if it wasn't one of those two guys, then it would be a Jewish man or woman, generally a man who would come along and solve the problem. So they hear a priest and they think, okay, the priest might solve this problem. A priest happened to be going down the same road. And when he saw the man, the man who's barely alive, he sees him. He's coming down the road. It says he saw him. He passed by on the other side. He sees him, and with this little tight crevice where they are, and, and this bloody patch, this crevice, some scholars believe today is what the psalmist is referring to when he says, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, that that may be the very same spot. There's some reason to believe that now in, in uh, some of the studies that look at this part of the world. 
he's coming through this crevice and he sees this man and instead of getting near him, he passes by on the other side. And the idea here of passing by means he's keeping a distance. He's not even getting near him. Interestingly, uh, they had added to the Old Testament law. The law said that, that a priest or a Levite could not touch a dead corpse so they would be defiled and there would be a time of cleansing and purification they'd have to go through. And, and so this man is passing by because he doesn't want to touch this dead corpse. But they had added to the law to the point that if your shadow were to touch an animal or a human being's corpse, you were defiled. And so he's probably passing so far that he's watching his shadow, that his shadow doesn't touch the guy. And then it says a Levite comes along, which, okay, if the priest doesn't solve the problem, the Levite will solve the problem. Verse 32, so too a Levite when he came to the place and saw him. Notice he sees the guy. He sees the guy in need. And what does he do? And he passed by on the other side. Now, this road was a road where priests and Levites commonly traveled because Jerusalem is where they would serve, but there were more priests who lived in Jericho. It was kind of like a, a priest and Levite uh, bedroom community to Jericho. More priests and Levites lived in Jericho than lived in Jerusalem. They would, as we know from Zacharias, the, the, the father of John the Baptist, they would be on teams of priests and they'd be called up for maybe a month or two to serve and then they'd go back home to wherever they were from. And so priests and Levites were constantly traveling this road. So this is a very common story they would understand. And, and it all makes sense. This is, this is what happens every day on this road. The Levite passed by on the other side as well. He didn't want his shadow to touch the guy. Then we read in verse 3. So the priests and Levite see his need but ignore it, go out of their way to go around him. Verse 33. But a Samaritan... This is where, I don't know how to make the sound, but it'd be the sound of a record stopping and the scratch. Because this is a huge plot twist. Remember, they are used to a problem, then either a priest and a Levite solving the problem, or a, if it's not one of them, then it's going to be a good Jewish person. But it's a Samaritan. Now we have to understand who the Samaritans are. If you go back to 722 B.C., the Assyrians come and they conquer the northern kingdom of Israel, the nation of Israel, and they take away captives, but they also deposit some Gentile people to live there in the capital of the north, Samaria. They intermarry with some of the Jews there and they become the Samaritans, half Jewish, half Gentile. And when the time of this destruction of the northern kingdom, and even the southern kingdom later ends, and the Jewish people return they have these half-blooded Jews that now have identified as Samaritans. And you can read in the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah doesn't allow a Samaritan named Sanballat to participate in the rebuilding of the walls. And Sanballat, and because of his son-in-law, his daughter marrying a Jewish man, he gets ticked off that they can't be included. So he kind of creates a new cult. Josephus tells us he goes and builds, the historian Josephus tells us he goes and builds a temple on Mount Gerizim that would rival the temple being rebuilt by Nehemiah, Ezra, and Zerubbabel. And so the Samaritans become these half Jewish, half Gentile people who have their own worship system, their own belief system, very close to Judaism, but it has some, some oddities about it. And so this schism emerges and this tension between the Jews and the Samaritans becomes strong. Well, by 108 BC, 
a little over 100 years before Jesus walked on the planet. There was a war going on, and the Jews went into the Samaritan territory, and the Jews destroyed the Samaritan temple on Mount Gerizim, ripped it down, defiled it, tore it apart, and the Samaritans get really ticked off for several generations. Up to about 8 AD, now Jesus is about 12 or 13 years of age, and at Passover in 8 AD, Josephus tells us some Samaritan men come on the opening day of the week-long celebration of Passover and they bring dead human beings' bones and dead animals' bones and they take these dead bones and they put them on the steps of the temple. They scatter them in the courtyard, which defiles the temple. It cannot be cleaned. And Josephus says there was no Passover celebration in Jerusalem. It ticks off the Jews. And Jesus' generation, just coming of age, 12 or 13 years of age, not Jesus, but his generation, has this deep animosity then and hatred toward those evil Samaritans who took away the greatest celebration of the year, Passover from us. And so there's that kind of animosity. They would go around Samaria because they felt like going through there would be dangerous for them and they didn't like those people. And so Jesus says, a priest passed by, a Levite passed by, but a Samaritan. What? Scandal. A Samaritan. We look at that and we say, what, what, what is that saying? It'd be like us saying, someone was beat up on the road here uh, on quarter G as, as you're heading back toward the city and, and um, uh, you know, Pastor Sean passes by and uh, Pastor Matt passes by and a couple elders and some people serving the church pass by and they don't help him. And then a jihadist comes along. Uh, a white supremacist comes along. A Nazi comes along. The, the, what, what those words bring up in us is what it would bring up in, in them as they hear this story. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. And when he, notice, saw him, he saw him. Remember what they did. Each time the priest and Levite, when they saw him, they passed by on the other side. One action, a negative action. They got away from him. Didn't even let their shadow touch him probably. But look, there were 11 things, nine he does right here and two that he promises. He saw, and it says in verse 33, he took pity, that means to be moved in the deepest point. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And then he put, that's the fifth verb here, he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to the inn and took care of him. The next day, the eighth verb, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and now here are the two verbs where he promises follow through. And I, when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Notice this guy is moved because another human being is hurting. Doesn't matter whether he's Jewish or Samaritan. He could have said, I'm a Samaritan, I don't help Jews. But he's moved deeply with the need of this man. And he stops, he helps him, he bandages him, he puts salve on the wounds, he puts him on his own donkey, which to a Samaritan, to put a Jew in your donkey would defile your, your donkey. A Jew wasn't worthy to ride on your donkey. He takes him probably into Jericho. The concept here is that they're going from Jerusalem to Jericho. Jericho would be the next town in this, this desolate path. Takes him, and can you imagine when a Samaritan comes into Jewish Jericho with a half dead Jew on the back of his donkey? People are going to look. 
what is the Samaritan doing with the mostly dead Jew on his donkey? It's going to be an issue. But he doesn't care. Because we know him as the good Samaritan. He, he writes a blank check to the innkeeper. When I come, anything it costs you, I'll reimburse you. Verse 36. Which of these, Jesus then says, which of these do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? Which one is the neighbor? The expert in the law simply replied, the one who had mercy on him. He got it. There was no other answer. He couldn't make any excuses for the priest and the Levite. Matter of fact, there was a thing called the mercy rule where a priest or Levite could defile themselves if it was to show mercy to someone, but they didn't invoke the mercy rule. And this legal expert knows that. And he said, it, it's the one who had mercy on him. Notice he can't save the Samaritan like Jesus did. Uh, that one guy in the story that showed mercy. Look at Jesus' response. At the end of verse 37, Jesus told him, go, it's continuous, go on your way and do continuous Likewise, Jesus is saying, the Samaritan is your example. Go be like that Samaritan. This is radical. It'd be like Jesus saying to us, there was this good jihadist. Now go and do like the jihadist did. We'd go, what, what are we talking about? Follow the example of, of a Samaritan? Well, let me just make a few observations from this passage about four kinds of people people, four kinds of people, and how they treat other people that are demonstrated in this story. First of all, in this story, we see some, we some, we see some takers, the robbers. They're obviously takers. You know, takers are, are people who see others as resources to be used. They see this guy's got clothes, he's got some money, they, he's alone, they can beat him up. They take his clothes because in that day, clothing was very expensive and, and most people only had one set of, of clothes that they would wear and so they take from him. Takers love things and use people. And when I say things, I'm not just talking about material things, I'm talking about status and even lust and, and arrogance and image and then things and materialism and greed and and. and Takers look at other people and they see them as a resource to get ahead in one way or another. You see, we're supposed to love people and use things, but when you become a taker, you love things and use people. And people get that. I've seen some very poor people who are givers, even as they receive benefits and encouragement from others. I've seen some very rich people who are takers. They're still using others. This is not a socioeconomic statement. This is an issue of the heart. These robbers are takers. Then there are spectators. Spectators. That's the priest of the Levite in the story. Spectators see others as inconveniences to be avoided. See, the priest of Levi come along and go, oh man, I've just been serving. I want to get back to my family, but if I get defiled, I can't even be around my family for so many days. If I touch this guy, if he's dead, if he dies while I'm helping him, if he dies on my donkey while I'm carrying him, oh man. So what do they do? What do spectators do? They see the inconvenience and they pass by as far away as they can so their shadow doesn't even touch it. They have nothing to do with it. 
They don't want their status diminished. Sometimes we have a certain image we're trying to keep up or a family image or even there can be a church image. We, we, we want to be known as this or that. And, and it's not bad to have a, a, a thrust, a, a passion to be something for Christ in the community. But sometimes we have a certain image that we take pride in and we think that's what we have to maintain. And so we avoid getting entwined in the messier stuff around us. Because we're trying to keep up a certain Christian image as a person, as a family, as a church. Spectators don't want their lives disturbed. This would be a disruption to slow down. But look at how the Good Samaritan allows his life to be disrupted. Incredibly disrupted. With his time, his energy. He probably got tired walking and not using the donkey. Having someone on the back writing a blank check to the innkeeper. They don't want their hands dirtied either. There's some Christians this way when it comes to ministering to others who come from different backgrounds or people who are broken and they're dealing with problems in their lives. And let me tell you, the, the world around us has a lot of broken people. And if we be honest, we are broken people redeemed by God's grace and growing in his grace. And we are here to be people who have a neighborly love to the most broken and distant people from us that we may have no uh, really understanding of their condition or who they are, but we need to love them like Jesus would love them. Not just sit back and see them as an inconvenience to be avoided. I love that you're celebrating 75 years here at Bible Center. 75 years. Going back to R.M. Maxwell, the businessman who started this church who wanted to reach the community for Christ. The, found, the, the first pastor after R.M. Maxwell got that started, Reed Jepson. I, know, I knew Reed and, and I, I, I've read things from that era and I talked to Reed about the history of the church and in that era there was this huge heart for the community. Matter of fact the emphasis was the city Bible center and if some of you have seen some of the old photos that go way back there when it was on the this church was on Broad Street an old big house that had a big wraparound porch they would have every year you wouldn't do it this way it would be just so politically incorrect but they'd have invalid Sunday here at Bible Center where they would send ambulances to the hospitals and if people could come and wanted to come, they would put their hospital beds in the back of the ambulance and there are pictures of the porch of that old Broad Street building where the church met for a season where there are beds and wheelchairs and people in crutches. They can't even get into the space in the main area because of all of their medical equipment. You see IVs next to them during a church service. Uh, they, were, they were very connected to the mission and allowed people who didn't look like them in socioeconomics and had addictions and brokenness, they just merged right in. And I love the history of Bible Center going all the way back to the time of R.M. Maxwell and Reed Jepson and then with Charlie Hendricks and then Bob Spradling and then my, my time to serve here and, and then with Pastor Eric who was with you last week and now with Pastor Matt, there is a rich history of this church demonstrating neighborly love even when it's uncomfortable and messy. Don't stop being that kind of church. I love the thrust you've got. You want to be a church the city of Charleston can't live without. Every church ought to be that wherever they are. And what, what is it they can't live without? The love of God we're pouring into them. The love of God they're seeing from us. Not just our programs, that's, that's one way. But then all of us, when we go to work, when, we, when we're in the neighborhood, when we're moving down the road, wherever you go, do like the, the good Samaritan. When we know what we're supposed to do and we don't do it, James 4, 17 says it is sin. They're spectators. They're takers. There then is a third category. There are debaters. 
debaters. They see others as problems to be discussed. They put together committees to deal with the issues of the day. They put together nice blog posts about what should be done to help people. They have beautiful, sweet little hashtags they use on social media about the problems around them. They, they debate, they discuss the problems. Who's that? Well, that's this legal expert that Jesus is having this exchange with. He's just into the debate. He just wants to philosophize and theorize and, and just discuss the problem. And he wants to pat himself on the back that he discussed it. And Jesus at the end says, stop being a debater. Stop discussing this and go and behave like the Samaritan in the story. There's probably a lot of us saying, well, what should we do about this problem in the community? How should we help with this need? And let's, let's figure this out and let's, let's blog post, let's social media about it. Roll up your sleeves and do like the Good Samaritan. And love that person at work that's struggling. Love the person in your community, your neighborhood. When I was in seminary, I joined a church planning ministry. And I love, they did some training of like a class of us who were going to be church planters on the East Coast. And I became an associate member of that church or that organization and they had training they sat down one-on-one -on -one and worked with me on what it would be like to be a church planner on the east coast and and then they they it was great training and great stuff and then they sent me to some churches to preach in these churches that had been planted already and to kind of learn who they were and what they were doing and when I spoke in these different churches in Delaware and Maryland I started realizing they're not practicing what they taught us they're actually planting churches instead of reaching new people for Christ. They're trying to find the disgruntled people from other churches and start their churches with those people. All the stuff they trained me, all the hours of discussion was all theory and problem solving at a philosophical level, but they weren't doing it. And oh, how America needs churches like Bible Center who have a history of rolling up their sleeves and loving the people in this community. Some of you have been involved in ministries. You've given financially. You've given your time, your sweat energy, your love, your passion to make sure that in your neighborhood where you work, people have been loved like Jesus. God bless you. God bless the generations before us here at Bible Center who love like the Good Samaritan. But let's make sure we don't get caught up in philosophizing and theorizing and just we're debaters about the problems. Let's roll up our sleeves and love people. The fourth category of people, you've got your takers. They see others as resources to be used. You've got your, your spectators. They see others as inconveniences to be avoided. You've got your debaters. They see others as problems to be discussed. But then you got your neighbors, your neighbors. The word neighbor here in Greek actually means the one close by, the one close by. So it has nothing to do with where you lay your head at night or where you call your home. It's whoever's close by you. Something interesting about this story is we think the good Samaritan is the outlier here, right? You, no Jew would consider a Samaritan their neighbor. That's the outlier. It's a person who's different than us. But also this patch of ground between Jerusalem and Jericho, this, this desolate area, there are these Bedouin families, but they're out there in these tents and they have no neighbors. So he sets not only the story with a person who wouldn't naturally be your neighbor, but he also sets the story in a place where nobody has any neighbors. And his point is, wherever you go, whoever crosses your path, whatever they're going through, you are their neighbor. And the Good Samaritan knew that. And we need to be those kind of people. 
You see, neighbors see others as people to be loved. They roll up their sleeves. They show love no matter who they are. The Samaritan said, I don't care. This guy's a Jew and I'm a Samaritan. I have pity on him. He needs help. They show love no matter what others say. He goes into Jericho dragging a half-dead Jew with him. But he's not concerned about that. He's concerned about that man's well-being. They love people no matter what the cost. You know, in that day, it wasn't like today where we rent a room and we get our own private room at a motel. Just like in colonial days here in America, when you went to an inn, they'd say, well, I've got half a bed left. And you shared a bed with somebody. You paid by the person. So he's got double his cost to put himself and this man up at the inn in Jericho. Then he writes a blank check. When I return, I'll pay you any cost it costs you to take care of this man and make sure he gets well. They show love no matter what the cost. So which one of these four groups of people do you fall into? You a taker? You a spectator? You a debater? Or are you a neighbor? We need to roll up our sleeves and be neighbors. Last fall, a story was told of a man named Joe Cerna who was a recent Iraq war vet who in Iraq, he and some buddies uh, were on patrol and their vehicle they were riding in fell off of a bridge into a river and they couldn't get out in the cabin of the truck they were in quick, quickly filled with water. The other three died and Joe Cerna lived, but he suffered with post-traumatic stress and became an addict and dealt with the problems and the pain through addiction and tried to escape that way and got him into some trouble. And he ended up in a court system for veterans that is called uh, uh, the Veterans uh, Assistance Court. And it's a legal uh, place where uh, folks in the system of the, the Veterans Administration can have justice poured out, but they can also have some kindness showed to them through trying to help them through their struggles and difficulties. But he has lied to the judge, and by what he has done, he's, he's required, the judge, Lou Oliveira, is required, he too a veteran of the first Persian Gulf War, he's required to ha- put a sentence of one night in jail for this man. But he knows that this man's problem is when he's in enclosed or locked spaces, his PTSD comes back. So he has to sentence him, and he drives him down to the court himself. Uh, Lou Oliveira, the judge, drives uh, this former Green Beret guy, Joe Cerna, down to the jail. They check Joe Cerna in. They close the door behind the cell. He's all alone, and he begins to have flashbacks of that truck and that experience and what he went through. Well, what he doesn't know is the judge talks to the jail administrator, and the judge says, I want to spend the night with him in that jail cell. And the judge, security tape shows, about an hour after Joe Sooner is put in the cell, is taken to the cell, the door is open, the judge walks in, the cell door is closed. And the judge says, I knew he needed someone to be with him, I knew what he was going to be going through. Joe Cerna says, when the door closed behind the judge, he said, I knew he was no longer my judge, he was my battle buddy. And no one in my life has ever shown me the love he showed me by staying there the night with me in the jail. They just talked about their families. The judge did all he could to distract him from the setting that would be causing that, that PTSD to flare up in, in Joe Cerna's life. And Joe Cerna made it very clear, no one has loved me like the judge loved me. He didn't have to do that. He was the judge. I was the person in trouble. He could have just gone on with his life. But when we love our neighbor, when we love our neighbor, we roll up our sleeves. We love them. We behave like the Good Samaritan. We don't make excuses. We don't debate. We don't just spectate. We don't take. 
we be a neighbor like the Good Samaritan. Ask God to bring people in your path this week. Ask God, talk to God in prayer. Ask him to bring people into your path this week that you can love like the Good Samaritan loved. In the name of Jesus. Father, thank you for this incredible story Jesus tells. Help us to continue the rich heritage here at Bible Center and be people, who not just through the programs, which are important, but through our everyday lives, to love people who are so far from us because you loved us when we were so far from you. Bless this wonderful church family. Bless Pastor Matt and all the leadership. Guide, protect, provide, and may this truly be a church that like the Good Samaritan loves the city around it to the point, the region around it to the point that this area just can't survive without Bible Center pouring in the love. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.